Well, you can open your Bibles to James 5 this morning. James chapter 5. As you're doing so, I'm going to tell you about Acts chapter 5, which famously records the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were a wealthy couple who had entered the church, and they wanted to give to this new church to help some of the poor brethren. So they sold one of their properties, and they were going to give the entire amount to the church. That's what they said. It was a noble thing. But the, the thing is, you, you probably know the story. They, they said they were going to give all of the proceeds to the church to help these poor brethren. But in reality, in secret, they were keeping back some of the sale for themselves. They wanted to appear super godly and super righteous. So they said they're going to give it all away. But that's not really what they did. Now, the thing is, they were under no obligation to give. I mean, why not just be honest? Why not just say, you know, we think we'll give maybe 50% to the church. We're going to keep the other half. It's totally fine. It was theirs to do with whatever they wanted. No one made them give. But they wanted to appear extra righteous. And so they made a false promise. They deceived the church with a false claim. And God takes such deceit extremely seriously. He wanted his new church to be a people marked by honesty. No longer like the world known for lies and deception, but just set apart by truthfulness. And so Peter convicted Ananias and Sapphira. And he told them, you've not lied to men, but to God. And then God himself took action, whereas Ananias and Sapphira both dropped dead. God's judgment fell so as to demonstrate to the rest of the church that Christ's bride was to be pure, holy, and marked by truthfulness, a radical truthfulness. The devil is the father of lies, but as Christians, we have a new father of now, a new father now, the God of truth, and so we are to be known as such. Now, I bring this up because this issue of false promises and false vows was more prevalent than you might think in the early church. The whole notion of making some promise or vow, yet intending to break it, it was a common occurrence in a Jewish culture. In this regard, this new church, which mostly was made up of Jews entering the church, becoming Christians, they were really no different. They were acting pretty much like the world in this regard. But these things ought not be this way. God's people need to be reminded and warned that they're to be known for the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Otherwise, God's discipline may fall. And as for James, he's writing to these very early Jewish Christians. And so it's not surprising to find him address this issue. Making false vows or deceitful oaths was a serious issue, a real problem among the people to whom he was writing. And we too can use this caution against really all forms of deceptive speech. And so the verse in question for us this morning is verse 12. That's it. Just just one verse. This is a one verse paragraph or section in scripture Where James 5.12, it notoriously sits alone. You could tack it on to the end of verses 7 through 11 or make it the beginning of 13 through 18. But either way, it would feel rushed. It would feel a bit out of place. For for preaching, I typically break up a sermon into a unit of thought. And verse 12 is, it's kind of its own thought. So here we are, a one verse sermon, but it'll be worth it. Let's read now what he has to say to the church in James 5 verse 12. He says this, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no 
No, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, this verse is not totally disconnected from the context. And the issue at hand is the right and wrong use of speech. And if you've been with us, you know that's been a major thread throughout all of James. Every single chapter, he brings up some issue of the tongue. And to wrongly use your speech, that invites God's judgment. He made that point just back in verse 9, and that comes up here as well. But a more direct connection seems to have to do with this issue of patience. If you remember from last week, the main command of the previous section is found in verse 7, where he says, therefore, my brethren, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be long-suffering, long-tempered, long-fused. Don't blow up. Don't be rash. Don't overreact, even when made to suffer unjustly. And, And James goes on to give examples of suffering and patience. So even when we're being made to suffer, we are to be long-suffering, just waiting on the Lord to return, to judge, to set things right. And this call to patience, that's something we need because especially when we're made to suffer, we're so prone to what? To impatience. It seems like the hardest thing to do when suffering a trial is just to wait, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord to answer, to rescue, to judge. But that's Precisely what we're called to do. Just be patient and trust the Lord. Now, how does this connect to here in verse 12? Well, what's, what is one of the greatest expressions of impatience? We could say swearing. I'm not talking profanity. I'm talking making a false vow, a rash promise. And given the background of James's audience, it seems he brings this issue up in verse 12 to ward off this manner of impatience, especially in connection with trials and suffering. James, remember back in verse four, he pictured the wicked rich and they were oppressing the poor and the righteous. They were withholding their wages. And so it's all too easy. You could just picture the early Christian in the church. He's been defrauded by a wealthy landowner and maybe he has a snap judgment response. And he says, you know, I swear to God, I will make him pay. Or maybe he says, God is my witness. I'm going to get him back. It's it's very possible that James has something like this in mind with all that's going on in the context. But we can never know for sure. He doesn't explicitly say. The point is, verse 12, it has connections to the context, but on the other side, by its content, it kind of sits alone. It is its own separate thought. And so we're going to treat it alone. He's dealing with an issue of speech that had become a real problem in the church, And this notion of making false vows or promises was a real sin to God. And and so it's worth looking at. This forms a needed correction, even for many of us, because we too, we're we're all too prone to make promises with our speech that that we don't keep or sometimes don't even intend to keep. It's something we need to watch out for, for the sake of the integrity of Christ's church. So let's go ahead and take a look at this lone verse now. And we're going to find from it, The call for truthful speech in the church. The call for truthful speech in the church. Give you a little outline just to hang some thoughts on. First, the conclusion. Number one, the conclusion. He says, verse 12, but above all, my brethren. Now, you're probably already wondering why I would call the first point the conclusion. But what I mean is by this opening phrase, James is actually signaling the conclusion of the whole letter. 
He's winding it down. This is the beginning of the conclusion of James. When he says above all, he doesn't mean that what he's about to say here in verse 12 is the most important thing he said in the whole letter. It's not. He is making a special point though, and this phrase could be translated especially. The way they were using their speech to make these false and rash promises was on his mind. Again, issues of the tongue have been on his mind every single chapter. He's very concerned with how the church, how us in the church, how we use our speech, because James knows what comes out of your mouth really reveals what's in your heart. And he wants them sanctified in speech. We need to share that concern as well for our own lives. And so really overall, verse 12 is kind of like a hinge verse. In a way, it serves as the final word on the note of patience and endurance from 7 through 11, but also it's kind of like the the opening to the conclusion of, of the whole letter. He's wrapping things up. From here to the end, there are three final issues he wants to address. And the first here in verse 12, it's short, it's sweet, but it's important, it's special, and we need not rush over it. We're going to give it its, uh, the time it, it deserves. So with that said, let's move on a little bit more of the meat. Number two, the command. The conclusion. Secondly, the command. He says in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear. That's the command. Do not swear. Now again, when we think of the word swear, we all think of profanity of, of the four-letter word. But that's not what this word refers to. And that's not what James is talking about here. Now, to be sure, Scripture does speak against profane, lewd, and and unholy speech. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that I will give grace to those who hear. And Ephesians 5.4 says, There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting among you, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. God wants us to have pure speech. There's a story of a pastor who set out to repair the church fence. So he got the hammer out, got the nails out, went out to fix the fence. And a member from the church asked if he could come along and just, just you know, participate. So the pastor said, sure. So the pastor's out there. He's doing work. He's hammering away. Meanwhile, this member of the congregation, he's just standing there watching the whole time, not, not doing anything. And eventually the pastor got kind of frustrated and said, did did you just come here to see if I knew how to build a fence? And the guy responded, no, I came here to see what comes out of your mouth when you hit the hammer on your thumb. (laughs) All of us, in all types of profane and lewd speech, Scripture calls us to put aside. But again, that's not what James is talking about. This word for swearing refers to swearing an oath, taking an oath making a promise, making a vow. That's what he means by the command when he says, do not swear. So what exactly is an oath? As a general concept, an oath is a promise made to some agreement that comes with assurance of truthfulness that's usually verified by invoking God's name or even invoking God's judgment if you don't go through with your vow. Oaths are these conventions we use to try and limit lying in society and assure truthfulness. The most famous version of a formal oath we still use today in the courts, where at least it used to be if you're a witness taking the stand, you would put your hand on the Bible and then accept the vow. You'd be asked, do you solemnly swear 
to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. And when you uh, reply in the affirmative, you're swearing an oath. In fact, in law, to violate such an oath is that the crime of perjury, which carries its own punishment. But such oaths are not always so formal. Anytime you swear that what you're saying is true, you're taking an oath. Anytime you, you make a promise or a vow, and especially when you invoke God's name, you're, you're making an oath. You can imagine two teens fighting in the room. One claims the other stole her cell phone, and so the other says in defense, I swear to God I didn't steal the phone. That's an oath. Or maybe a tree falls on your property or on your neighbor's property and crushes their fence, kind of like what happened to us. And your neighbor says, you know, hey, as, my, as God is my witness, I vow I'm going to fix this. That would be a, an oath. Even children pick up on this behavior from adults and they have their own little form of oaths and vows. Maybe some kids make a promise or they share some gossip. And, and to prove it's true, they might say, you know, cross my heart, hope to die. That's actually a, an old religious oath. You make the sign of the cross over your heart, and you're invoking the death penalty if what you're saying is not true. It's pretty serious, but of course, it's never used seriously today. Now, speaking of today, we don't use such oaths very often anymore. At the very least, we don't rely on the oath for our formal agreements. Oaths are mostly reserved for the court of law. And we have other conventions now to, to really make people stick to their word and, and do what they say, like a contract that has really replaced the oath. We don't really care about your word, which is kind of sad. The word, your word doesn't really mean anything anymore. You have to sign on the dotted line and, and what's in writing is binding in our culture. But back then, it wasn't that way. In the ancient world, written contracts weren't that common. And even still, they didn't have a great record-keeping system. So most agreements were simply made by a verbal vow, where the oath was like a contract. It was a binding agreement witnessed by the community. Your word was your bond. So making vows was a big deal. Breaking vows was a bigger deal. It was taken extremely seriously. And, And then if you were to make and break a vow in God's name, that was the biggest deal. So anyway, I trust you understand now what James means when he gives this command. Do not swear. He's not talking about profanity. He's talking about making a vow, a promise, an oath. The command comes as a negative. It's in the present. Stop doing that. No longer make oaths. Don't take any more vows. Now that might sound a little odd to you, especially in that culture where You know, I thought this was like an everyday part of their life. Why would James be commanding them to not do that anymore? Why stop making oaths or or vows? Is is James telling the church to to never swear an oath? Like, what about marriage? What about in a courthouse? What exactly is, is he getting at here with this command? It feels like we need some clarification. And thankfully, that's what we get. So number three, the clarification. Thirdly, the clarification. Back to verse 12. He says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear. Then he says, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. And when James says this, this this little middle phrase, it gives us all the clarification we need to know exactly what he's talking about. 
And that's largely because his words here are almost identical to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can turn now, keep a finger in James 5 and go to Matthew 5. Follow with me to Matthew chapter 5. And you'll see how the words of Jesus provide the unmistakable context to James's command. That's because Jesus gives the same command, the same clarification, just that we get the longer version from Jesus. Matthew 5, it begins the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus is addressing the issue of kingdom righteousness. He's painting the picture of true righteousness in contrast to the the phony righteousness and the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. As you know, they had made their own system of false works righteousness, and Christ takes issue with that. He confronts them, he exposes them, and making false vows and oaths was one of the issues of their phony righteousness. And so look at Matthew 5, follow as I read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. 5.33, he says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So you can see what I mean when I I say that that James unmistakably is referencing the words and the thoughts of Jesus here. And that's not surprising. Again, if you've been with us throughout this study in James, you know he's been referencing the Sermon on the Mount like all over. It was clearly in his mind a huge influence on the epistle of James. So let's talk about what Jesus was saying. If you get what Jesus was saying, it's going to make crystal clear what what James is saying. They're saying the same thing. So Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. Now when he says this, he's not directly quoting Old Testament scripture per se. He's relating the teaching of the scriptures that were compiled together. When he references the ancients here, he's not talking about the authors of scripture. He's talking about ancient rabbinical writings and traditions that were passed down along with the scriptures. See, the Jewish rabbis over the years, they took God's law and they gave their own interpretation of it. They wrote it down. It's called the Mishnah. And it became kind of like a second Bible, an authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament law. It was like this second standard of righteousness, but it was man-made and, and Christ took issue with it. Now, in, in one sense, the ancients, they had rightly related what the law said about vows. You know, Jesus said of them, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That's actually what the Old Testament teaches. They were right. At that point, they were right. Leviticus 19.12 says, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. Numbers 30 verse 2, it says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
So again, in that culture, making a solemn oath was just part of life. It's like signing on the dotted line. And God's law did not prohibit it. It simply regulated it. If you're going to make a vow, well, you better keep it. And if you're going to make a vow by God's name, you really better keep it. And to violate an oath after invoking God's name, that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. And that itself came with its own great penalty. So making vows was not forbidden in the Old Testament. It was simply regulated. What was forbidden was breaking vows. Going back on your word to God is a serious sin. He doesn't like perjury. And you and I were always on the stand in God's eyes. Everything we say, we're held accountable to. Now, with this in mind, though, we're still wondering, like, okay, then why does Jesus have a problem with oaths and vows? If it's not forbidden in the Old Testament, it's even expected in the Old Testament, why, why is Jesus taking issue with it? It's acceptable in the law. What's his problem? And the reason is that the rabbis had made all these loopholes in the vow system to, to break their vows and even to justify deceit. Here's what they did. The Bible says really next to nothing about canceling your vow or uh, absolving your vow. So more or less, you make it, you keep it. But there's a huge section in the Mishnah devoted to getting out of your vows and to breaking your vows. And one big loophole had to do with what was considered a binding vow to begin with. And so basically, the only vows that really counted to the Jews later on were the ones that explicitly invoked the name of God. But if you made a vow and you didn't actually mention God's name, it wasn't technically legally binding, and it could be made void by the rabbis. And so as a result, the Jews went on to form very creative and elaborate oaths, swearing on all sorts of spiritual things, but they stopped short of actually invoking God's name. They might swear by heaven or by Jerusalem or the temple or, or the altar in the temple. They might swear by the hair on their head or their own life. And today we would add, like people say, you know, I swear on my mother's, my mother's grave. But as long as they stop short of actually mentioning the name of God, they could technically get out of that vow. So it became a game of sorts. How creative could you be in your oath? How pious could you sound without actually mentioning the name of God? That's what they did. You can you know, imagine a Jew, and he makes a vow that when his parents get old, he's going to financially support them. And he might say something like, you know, I swear on the cherubim sitting above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, separated by the veil of the temple. It sounds really lofty, sounds very pious. But, you know, but later that person decides... You know, I don't think I am going to support my parents anymore. I'm going to keep my money. And his parents might appeal to the rabbi like he vowed to help us. He needs to help us. But upon examination, since he did not actually invoke God's name, his vow would not be enforced. In this manner, religious hypocrites would escape all manners of vows. And even worse, they were doing this on purpose. They purposely made oaths that they had no intention of keeping, And they could easily trick the unassuming who didn't know better by making lofty vows, but just not mentioning God's name. And so you go back to Christ's words here. What he says in response should make a lot more sense now. He's calling out all these different things that they were swearing on. Verse 34. 
He says, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Christ is not refuting the basic idea of making an oath or vow as found in the Old Testament. He's just calling out their corrupt practice. He's refuting this man-made, hypocritical, deceitful system invented by the Jews, really just made to get out of oaths and to lie to people, yet feel justified. Now there's more here. Turn to Matthew 23. It's one more passage. Matthew 23. Here Jesus, he's just outright condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. He pronounces a series of woes upon them for their deceit. The rabbis of Christ's day, they'd actually added a few conditions to a binding oath. So if you swear on God's name, that's binding. They added, if you swear by the gold in the temple, that's binding too. Or the offering in the temple, that's binding. It shows you what they valued, you know, gold. But this whole system was bankrupt. It was all just a means to get away with deceiving and defrauding people and just not being a man of your word. And so Christ pronounces judgment upon them and and their system. Look at with me, Matthew 23, 16 through 22. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important? the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You can see the point he's making. Any vow you make is before God. That's the point. Everything you say God holds binding. You can't get out of it by stopping short of God's name. When you vow by some aspect of creation like heaven or the temple, you're still vowing before God. He made all things. He's behind all things. I mean, no matter what you say, when when you swear, you're swearing before God. He sees that vow and he will hold you accountable to everything you say. Isn't that what Christ said in Matthew 12, 36? He said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. God's listened to everything you say, and he's, that's your word. You're going to help, be held accountable to your word. There's no getting out of it by claiming some false vow. And the Jews tried hard to appear godly and pious in their vows. But these were just meant to disguise their lies and deception. And to God, this is a serious offense. Now, you can go back to James 5. Back to James 5. We find that what he's saying is it's the exact same as what Jesus was saying, almost, almost word for word. James five twelve, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. It's a short version, but he's, get, he's really forbidding the same corrupt practice, which was prevalent among the Jews. 
and it was making its way into the church. But you see what lies behind this is a heart of deception. You're making false vows or oaths, making deceptive promises. You have no intention to keep or deceiving others with your speech. These are all serious sins to God. Now, you may hear this so far, and you may think, okay, I get that. That, that makes sense. But, you know, I don't really do that. I never really make an oath or a vow. Like, that's kind of an old thing. We don't, we don't do that anymore. So this doesn't really apply to me. But it still does. And first off, perhaps you are someone who's guilty of careless swearing or carelessly swearing. Maybe someone cuts you off on the freeway, and in exasperation, you say, you know, I swear to God, if, if that happens again, I'm going to lose it. You don't actually intend to invoke God's name in an oath, but you did. And I think for a lot of us, our problem here is just with careless speech. Do you ever make careless promises? You might say, look, I promise I won't work late tomorrow. I'll be home for dinner. You really should just say, I'll do my best. But no, you say, I promise. But then, you know, some emergency comes up in work and you're forced to stay and you're forced to break your promise. You may not have had malicious intent. You surely did not have malicious intent. But the point is, your, your words matter. We're to be marked by like radical truthfulness. Beware careless speech. Even worse, is what, though, is when people, they make false promises, but they're, they're doing it on purpose to deceive. They know from the get-go, like, this isn't true, but I'm going to tell them it's true anyway. You may not vo- invoke a formal oath today, but... Do you ever tell people things you have no intention of keeping? Do you ever hide behind friendly, even pious speech, but in your heart, you know you're lying, it's just for the sake of appearance? This still happens all the time. Someone asks you, hey, can you help me move next Saturday? And you say, oh, sure, yeah, no problem, I'll be there. But meanwhile, you know, like, there's no way you're going to do that. There's no, you work hard all week. You're not going to give up your Saturday to do hard labor. Like, you you don't want to go. Your mind is already set. You're not going to go. But you want to appear as a nice friend. So you say, yeah, I'll I'll be there. But you know in your heart, like, I will definitely come up with some excuse before next Saturday to get out of this. Is that any different from making a false vow? And do you see how it carries the same heart of deceitfulness? And that's the issue here. Or maybe you're hanging out with some Christian friends on a Saturday night. The night comes to an end, so your friend says, hey, good night, I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow at church. And you say back, oh yeah, yeah, see you tomorrow at church. But meanwhile, in your heart, you know, like, you've already determined not to go. You're 99% sure you're just going to sleep in tomorrow, but you want to appear, what, spiritual? So you say, yeah, I'll see you at church, but you don't really mean it. It's the same type of false promises or just false speech. And it's true that the cultural practice of invoking oaths is not really that prevalent today. The only solemn vows we take are in marriage or in the courthouse. That's that's kind of it. But, you know, we make promises with our speech all the time, whether we invoke God's name or not. So just understand the principle behind the words of Jesus and James, that all dishonest, deceptive, and misleading speech is a serious sin to God. It's unbecoming of the church. God wants his people to be characterized by a radical truthfulness. Now, real quick, before we move on and and wrap up, I'll address one side note. 
Because some people wonder, you read a verse like this and you might wonder, okay, does this mean Jesus and James are forbidding us from all types of oaths and vows? Right? Does this mean it's wrong for Christians to make a wedding vow or to swear in a courtroom? Or is a doctor sinning when he takes the Hippocratic, uh, Hippocratic oath? Some Christian groups have believed this in history. The Quakers, they will refuse to take a vow or an oath in a courthouse because of this very verse. But hopefully you already see that's not what James has in mind. He's not forbidding formal oaths in society. And we've already seen a bit of it. The wider council of scripture makes very clear that it's not sinful in and of itself to make an oath or a vow, even in God's name. Again, the Old Testament expected people to make vows. It's just that if you're going to make an oath, you better keep it. And if you make it in God's name and you break it, you've just taken the Lord's name in vain. It's just, it's very serious. That's the point. The same goes in the New Testament. There are many examples of people taking oaths and vows, like the Apostle Paul. Several times he swears and vows that he's not lying. He even calls God as his witness that he's telling the truth. Christ himself accepted a vow during his trial by the Sanhedrin, the high priest placed him under oath. And he said, Matthew 26, 63, he said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And when Christ said, you have said so yourself, he's accepting the oath. And God himself even makes oaths. Hebrews 6 relates how God swore to Abraham with an oath of his intention to bless him. And we receive that same promise. So like it's clear that the teaching of James and Jesus is not forbidding oaths in our society as a form of a social contract. It's acceptable to make a vow, even before God. Isn't that what we do in marriage? But learn from Jesus and James not to make flippant vows and do not swear deceitfully. Don't make false promises. Don't make any vow or or word that you have no intention to keep. Is how we use our speech. It matters to God. And really, when you think about it, do Christians ever really need to make a vow? Shouldn't our speech be so truthful that we don't ever really need this special word of promise to assure people we're telling the truth? It's just, we should just always speak truthfully, right? And that forms the needed correction to this teaching on oaths that James gives. It's number four, the correction. Fourthly here, the correction. You keep reading back in verse 12. He says after, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no. And you recall Jesus used the same phrase. It's really a simple statement and it serves as a correction on this whole system of oath taking. And instead of using oaths and vows in daily speech, why not just always be honest about everything you say? So you never need an oath to assure people you're telling the truth. Just be plain in your speech. Mean what you say. And then you'll never need to swear or vow. When you think about it, why have vows been necessary in in so many societies throughout history? You know, when a witness takes a stand, he goes under oath. Why do we need a special promise by him that he's telling the truth? Why can't we just, just expect him to tell the truth? And you realize the very fact that societies have oaths and vows is because they recognize deep down all people are liars. 
Everybody lies. Everybody will lie. They're prone to lie. You can't really trust anyone. People are deceptive in their core. And so we need them to make some special vow or promise that this time they're really telling the truth. It's just a recognition of man's depravity. That's why we have oaths. They only exist because we expect people to lie. We need an assurance of truth. I mean, think about it. You tell someone, hey, can I borrow $50 for gas? I swear to God, I'll pay you back. What are you communicating by swearing to God like that? Why do you have to resort to an oath? Why not just say, can I borrow $50? I I will pay you back. Why must you say, I I swear to God, I'll pay you back. Now, the very existence of such swearing, you're basically communicating this. Hey, I know that ordinarily you expect me to lie. Like you expect me to be dishonest. That's probably because I've violated my words so many times in the past. So since I'm so prone to dishonesty, here's a special little verbal assurance that, that proves this time I really mean it, mostly. I'll really do it this time. I mean, do you see how the very presence of oaths like this, it cheapens ordinary speech. And for the Christian, our speech is to be different. James and Jesus want the church and their speech to be marked by integrity. We don't need trivial vows to convince people we're telling the truth. Instead, nothing but the truth should come from our lips all the time. And that means vows are kind of obsolete. We should be so known for truthfulness that people don't doubt our plain speech. They don't say, but do you promise? You, you tell your friend, hey, can I have $50? I'll pay you back. And they say, okay, sure, I, I believe you. I, I know you. You always speak truth, so sure. Instead, all we really need to say is yes and yes or no and no. And what he means by that is just, just mean what you say. Speak truth all the time. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The church is to be a community marked by truthfulness. And doesn't such truth-telling unite people together in trust? Lies and deception, that sows disunity, distrust, discord. But when you have people who are just known for truth and honesty, it, it, it really produces trust and unity and peace. Maybe you're having a birthday party at your house and a friend from church graciously offers to come early and help you set up. It's very nice. But on the day of, they call and they say, you know what, something else came up I'd rather do, so I'm not going to make it. And they might say like, hey, it's not like I signed a contract here. Or maybe they'll joke with you and say, you know, I promised to be there, but my fingers were crossed. Isn't that our 21st century version of breaking vows? You know, my fingers were crossed. What does that even mean? But how would that make you feel? And what would that do to your relationship? A huge violation of trust, right? And you can see how dishonesty can have a real impact on the unity of the church. We don't want others deceiving us with false promises or false vows, and, and we must not do the same. And those who do, those who persist in false and deceptive speech, need to be warned. And so we finish with number five, the consequences. Lastly, number five, the consequences. Just to round out verse 12 here. Your yes is to be yes, your no, no. And then he says, so that you may not fall under judgment. And James finishes with a warning of judgment on the one who's characterized by deceptive speech. 
false vows, broken promises, taking the Lord's name in vain, they're serious offenses and they come with God's punishment. God disciplines his children. The believer who falls into dishonest speech can expect the Lord's discipline and rebuke. But God the judge does not like perjury. That being said, this word for judgment here, it's not actually the word for discipline. This is the word that speaks of being sentenced by the judge. It's almost always used in connection with the final judgment. And so we can say that the person who is characterized by evil speech, lies, falsehood, false vows, no repentance, no change in their life, that person's a false believer. Like the Jews, or rather like the, the scribes and Pharisees, they're just a religious hypocrite. And they're still under God's judgment. Now listen, back in James 3, he made clear we all stumble in many ways when it comes to our speech. We've covered that. We're, we're all guilty of sinful speech. But now here we're talking about the person who's only known for evil speech. No remorse, no repentance, no, no signs of life. They demonstrate they're still of their father, the devil. And it's only right to warn such people as James does in love before it's too late. Repent, turn to Christ. He's the only one that can make the unclean clean, give you a new heart, give you a new tongue as well. That's what happens when you come to Christ. You submit in true repentance and faith. He makes you new. Because at the end of the day, we are liars. We are all of our father, the devil. We're liars at our core. It's part of, it's part of total depravity and the fallen human nature. But Christ offers new life, a new heart, a new tongue. And when you, you bow to him in repentance and faith, he makes you born again. You get new equipment. And with your new tongue, he wants you to speak truth. It's a sign that you have been born again. Deceptive speech is very, very serious to God, though. In Revelation 21 and 22, three times it references the final place of judgment for the lost. It's the lake of fire. And each time... One specific sin gets extra emphasis, and it's the practice of lying. Three times. Liars will have no part in the kingdom. Liars will go to the lake of fire. Speech is serious to God. God's a God of truth. Nothing but truth comes from him. Satan is the father of lies. And those who live like him, they're going to join him in the end. The scripture gives a pretty strong warning against deceptive speech. And, and woe is me if I don't repeat that warning. And even for us, those here who know Christ, we're in Christ, we're completely forgiven in Christ of all of our sins, all of our sinful speech, we're redeemed. Still, we too need to carefully consider how we use our speech. Christ died to create a body, the church, that would be set apart, clean, and that includes how we talk. Christ only spoke the truth, and he wants us to be the same. And don't you want to be part of a community like that, where you can just take people at their word? Wouldn't that be nice? You know, unlike the world, you don't have to wonder, is this person telling me the truth, or are they playing me? Are they serious in their promise? Can I trust them, or do I have to guard my heart because I know that they're probably going to lie to me just like everyone else in the world? I mean, don't you want the church to be a place of radical truthfulness and honesty in your speech? Then do your part. Fulfill the Lord's will for the church. Speak the truth in love all the time. Speak the truth in love 
all the time. Say what you mean. This is, in fact, one of the primary ways God has designed us, for us, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And one of the primary ways he's designed for us to, to be built up in love, for the body of Christ to be built up in love. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we, we thank you that you are a God of truth. You're a God where truth matters. You've spoken your word. Your word is truth. And we need it to know you. You've revealed yourself to us in it. But we have a problem, a problem of lies. From the beginning, we're, we're Satan tempted and deceived with lies, being the father of lies. And we now all are, are born his children. Born liars and corrupt and deceitful in our nature. And I think we all, if we're being honest with our hearts, we can testify to that. We have the, the seeds of uh, deceit in our hearts. And they separate us from you. You're a God who abhors deceit. You're a God of truth, and, and that's a problem for us. But you sent Christ to, to die, to, to pay for these sins, to offer new life. You call yourself, us to yourself, even together as a church. And making us new, now we are to be marked by, by truth, by your truth. And nothing but the truth. So help us, God. And we we pray that's true for us here. That we as a local church are a body marked by this radical honesty. That we just say what we mean. We have no need for useless vows or gimmicks. We just are people who speak the truth in love all the time. That, that, That produces such a wonderful place. A wonderful body where we can just trust one another. It forms a foundation of love and unity. This is how you've designed the church to be built up. And so indeed, may we do our part. Sanctify us in the truth, Lord, that we would be uh, truth givers, that we would speak truth one to another all the time. Convict us and grow us in this regard. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.